Father, as we come to this text today and we again watch uh, the actions of this great patriarch, Jacob, Lord, sometimes he doesn't act like a great patriarch, and today's one of those days. He's still, he's still trying to determine his own fate, Lord, and because he keeps trying to determine his own fate, we're going to see that he becomes a fatalist and, and, and uh, just forgets all of the wonderful things that you've done for him. Lord, we're in danger of doing that ourselves, especially in difficult times like we live in now, Lord, to try to take matters into our own hands, to, to try to determine our own fate, Lord. We know that doesn't work, and, and Lord, it only leads to a pessimistic attitude, a bitter and a spirit, and, and deprives us of the witness that you want us to have in this world. And, and that's exactly what happened to Jacob, and we don't want it to happen to us. So, Lord, help us to learn the lessons you would have us to learn as we look at this today. Help us to be people of faith, Lord, people who walk by your direction, people who walk in your power, by your spirit. And, Lord, that's the kind of people we want to be. That's the way we want to live our life. And, and Lord, we can only do that as you direct us. And so help us to be your children who, who look to you, Lord, and follow you and, and uh, are guided by you. And, Lord, that just makes for so much of a better life. And Lord, we can go through anything that comes our way when we, we follow that pattern. So teach us these lessons today, Lord, and I ask that you do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Back in the 1950s in the movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Some of you might have watched that movie. Jimmy Stewart is the star of the movie, but his co-star is Doris Day. Any of you remember Doris Day? Uh, you younger people, I know you don't know who Doris Day is, but she, she sang her signature song in that movie, and the name of that song was Que Sera Sera, which means whatever will be, it's Spanish, for whatever will be, will be. Now, I was going to sing it for you, but I think maybe I'll spare you that and just, just read you the chorus, but let me read you the chorus here. Que Sera Sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not mine to see. Sarah, Sarah, what will be, will be. Now, that's the way a lot of people see life. Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. I mean, you, you could call it the national anthem of the fatalist. I mean, the fatalist who is someone who believes that we're all victims of our fate. We don't have any control over our fate. And that's a, that's a wrong way to look at life. And it produces a very pessimistic outlook of life. But I believe sometimes as Christians, we're guilty of looking at life that way. And that's exactly what happened to Jacob. Now, Jacob lived 130 years, and he had some tough things that happened to him in those years. And some, in some ways, you could say they were hard years that he, he lived. And so, to some degree, he became a fatalist. I mean, he became a victim. He thought of himself as a victim of his fate. But really, whose fault was that? It was Jacob's fault. Because Jacob really lived a kind of paradoxical life. He not only lived as a fatalist, he lived on the other extreme as what we call a determinist. Someone who tries to determine their faith. So here's Jacob 
over and over again, taking things into his own hands and trying to determine his own fate. And when he fails at it, eventually what happens when you keep failing in your determination and trying to determine your own fate, you're going to become a fatalist and you're going to become bitter and uh, you're going to be a miserable uh, person. And even if you're a child of God, you're going to be a miserable child of God. And then, you know what, as a pastor, I can tell you from experience in my own life, I can tell you from experience that when you try to keep taking matters into your own hand, you're going to end up thinking you're nothing but a victim of fate and you're going to have a very pessimistic attitude. And we're going to see that in Jacob today. And hopefully in this study today, we can find the balance between determinism and fatalism and and uh, maybe we won't have the same thing uh, plague us that plagued Jacob. So grab your Bibles and go to chapter 43, and let's pick up there in verse number 1, chapter 43, verse number 1. And, and we get the setting right away there in verse number 1. It says, now the famine was severe in the land. We knew it was going to be severe. Pharaoh had had a dream, and how long was this famine going to last? It was going to last seven years. Now, Jacob and his sons didn't know how long it was going to last. They weren't privy to that dream and that interpretation of that dream uh, because they had sold their brother off into slavery, and he was the one who interpreted it. Uh, but here they are, and now they're, they're probably in maybe the first, late first part or second part uh, of, or second year of the famine, and they've run out of food again already. Uh, you remember uh, last time... Uh, uh, when we left off last time, Jacob's sons had come back home and they, they had food with them. And, and uh, when they unloaded their sacks, lo and behold, they unload their sacks. And what do they find? They find the money that they had paid for the food. And so they're very afraid because they figured that maybe somebody framed them or at the very least, uh, this man who they had dealt with, who happened to be their brother, uh, who was king, really the, the lord over all of Egypt, that man was going to think that they didn't pay for that food, and so they really couldn't go back. But, but, but as it says in verse number one, the famine was uh, severe in the land. It was very severe in the land. And, and not only that, they had, they, Joseph had called them spies, and in defense of themselves, they said, hey, we're family, man. And so he said, tell me about your family. He said, well, I've got our father who lives back at home in Canaan and Hebron, and our younger brother, Benjamin lives there too. And so they kind of spilled the beans about their family. And the man, as they're going to call him today, this Lord over Egypt, who was really their brother, he says, well, I want to see, uh, you got to prove that to me. So before you come back here asking for any food, you're going to have to bring back your younger brother, Benjamin. And uh, they told Jacob about that. And Jacob said, no way. I'm not having any of that. And so here they are in a predicament. They're running out of food, and yet they really can't go back. And so we pick up now in verse number 2. And it says, And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt. Not only, not only was that grain for them, it was for their cattle too. And so if they didn't have grain, they were going to lose their cattle. Uh, but they had eaten up the grain. The cattle had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt. That their father said to them, Now, here's Jacob. He's going to wheel and deal a little bit. And you can see it right here. He says, go back and just try to buy a little food. I mean, don't go back and and, and maybe if you just go back and try 
to buy a little bit of food. You won't have to encounter the man. You won't have to encounter that, that Lord of Egypt who was so harsh to you, the one that put Simeon in prison. Just go back and see if they'll give you a little bit of food. Give them a top price for it. And, and, and uh, Judah's having none of that. So he says in verse number, number three, but Judah spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face. In other words, you're not going to get any more food. Unless your brother's with you, your younger brother is with you. If, if, you, send out, if you send out your brother with us, J- Judah says to Jacob, if you send out your brother with us, we will go down and we will buy. You send out our brother with us, we will go down and we will buy you food. But if you will not send Benjamin, we will not go down. For that man, that harsh man that was treated us so rudely, said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And not only that, we found our food in those sacks. And so we can't go back unless we've got Benjamin. There's just no way. Now watch this. And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully, so wickedly, really literally so stupidly? Why did you deal so stupidly with with me as to tell that man whether you had whether you had still another brother. What good did that serve? I mean, couldn't you kept your big mouth shut? Why did you have to tell him about Benjamin? That just doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that to me? Jacob says to me. And now I'm hungry. Jacob's thinking about Jacob here. But notice who he, how he's referred to here. He's referred to in the first part of verse number six as Israel, as prince with God. That's how God still saw him, as a prince walking with God. Well, he really wasn't walking with God, but he was in in the position where he was in a relationship with God. But he wasn't acting like it. He wasn't acting like a man of faith. He was acting out of fear and not faith. I mean, he actually, his fear had paralyzed him. But here he is now, he's 130 years old, and God had proved himself to Jacob over and over and over and over again. But Jacob still has almost no faith. I mean, it, what, if, you, if he has faith, it's little faith. And, and, and uh, it's a good thing that a little faith can save you. It's a good thing that it's not how much faith faith you has that that saves you it's who your faith is in that saves you and his faith was in jehovah god but man is it uh little and uh he's a miserable fatalist and he's thinking that the very worst is going to happen and and so uh he's fighting them all the way but they said to him uh, in verse number seven but they said hey this wasn't our fault the man asked us pointedly about ourselves. I mean, he called us spies and then he began to ask us, prove to me that you're not spies. And he began to ask questions about us. And he asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Uh, have you another brother? Now, as we advance on in this, if I was one of those brothers, I would think that I would be wondering, why is this guy so interested in my family? There are so many clues that Joseph gives them along the way to let them know who he is, but they just are too dumb to pick it up uh, or too uh, uh, close-minded to pick it up. They, they just don't see it. They, in their mind, Jacob had gone off to slavery, and, and he was probably dead by now. This was over 20, 
two years since he had, he had gone off into slavery. And so they had sold him into slavery. So they figured he's dead. But, 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 but they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family saying, if your father is still alive, uh, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down to us? I mean, of course not. They, they wouldn't have known that. Who would have thought that? And then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and we will go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. Look, dad, we're all going to die. If we don't go down there, we're about to run out of food. Now, they didn't know how much longer this famine was going to last. And they weren't totally out of food. They still had some nuts and some fruit and some other things that they could eat on for a while. But they were going to be eating steak or, or uh, grain or bread if, if they didn't get down and get some food. And eventually they were going to all die. And Benjamin was going to die with them. And so, so what good would it do for us all just to sit here and starve to death? That's, that's Judah's point. And I watch Judah here, and, you, and, and we've seen kind of a, some flashes of godly character in Judah along the way. And we're going to see that again here. Now, it, it, he's always flashing godly character in the midst of doing something evil, so it's really hard to give him much credit. I mean, for example, when he was in Dothan and they were about to kill uh, Joseph, remember, he was the one who suggested that they sell him off to slavery to those midnight traders that were coming. So that's kind of a flash of godly Character in the midst of doing evil. We see the same thing uh, when when uh, uh, he has sexual relations with Tamar, thinking she's a prostitute. Now that's certainly doing evil. But right in the midst of that, she gets pregnant, and he takes response when they're about to stone her. He takes responsibility for the fact that he was the one who got her pregnant. So so that's a flash of godly character. But it's in some pretty uh, uh, dirty details that, that he shows the dirty character. And here again, he's showing some godly characters. We come to verse number nine. Listen to what he says. He says, my, I myself will be a surety for him. And he's serious about this because we're going to see him actually do this later on. He is going to be a surety for Benjamin. He says, I myself will be a surety for him. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring back to you, bring him back to you, and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Now that's, that's a lot different from the brash and arrogant vow that Reuben made in the last chapter that we saw last week. Remember what Reuben said. He says, I'm going to go, I'm going to get the food, and I'm going to come back with Benjamin, and I'm going to come back with Simeon, and if I don't come back, you can kill my two sons. Well, that was a stupid vow, and it was a very brash vow. He wasn't going to go up to Egypt, defeat the armies of Egypt, and get Simeon out of jail and bring Benjamin back. He wasn't going to be able to do that. But Judah says, look, I know it's going to be tough, and I know that I might not be able to bring Benjamin back, but I'll bear the blame forever if I can't bring him back. I sincerely am going to do my best to bring him back and keep us all from starving, and so so he acts almost like a man of God here uh, in that in that part of the chapter. Now we come to verse number ten. He says, "For if we had not lingered, now he gets on his dad a little bit. He says, for if we have not had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. I mean, we would have been there and back twice 
if, if uh, uh, you hadn't kept saying we couldn't take Benjamin. It's time we leave. We can't wait any longer. If we wait any longer, we're going to lose our cattle and we're going to die. And their father Israel now said to them, now, now watch, watch how this, this changes here. And their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this, take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry, carry them down as a present for the man. A little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Oh, Jacob, Jacob, still the wheeler dealer, still the hill catcher. I mean, here he is. He's a determinist. He's going to determine his fate. He's going to determine what happens to, to, uh, to Benjamin. He's going to determine what happens with that food. Uh, he's, going to, he's going to do his very best to make it work out the way he wants it to work out. Now, what should he have done, should he have done at this point? What should he do? He should go to the Lord in prayer. And say, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know what the Lord might have said to him? I want you to eat those nuts and I want you to eat that fruit. I want you to eat what you've got left and I'll see to it that you get some food. Now, I don't know that the Lord would have done that, but that might have been what the Lord would have done. But but he doesn't ask the Lord. He has determined what he's going to do and he's going to prepare a bride for this Egyptian leader and and uh, who happens, by the way, to be his own son. Do you think he needed to bribe his own son? I don't think so. Do you think God knew that? Certainly God knew that. And, and so here is Jacob, and he's scheming again. Let me ask you a question. You've been in, in this study. We've been in here for several months. How has Jacob's scheming worked out for him so far? I remember when, he, when, he, when him and his mom tricked Isaac out of the birthright and, and tricked, uh, got the birthright away from Esau. How'd that work out for him? He had to run for his life. You remember when he, he, he worked a deal with old Uncle Laban? I mean, uh, his, his, and now he's, he's face-to-face with another wheeler dealer, another schemer. He worked out a deal to marry Rachel. What, how, how did that work out for him? He got Leah. You remember when, when, Isaac, when, when he was about to face his brother Esau, and, and uh, he figured, man, what I'm going to do, I'm going to bribe him. I'm going to send him, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of gifts and uh, and. And he's going he's gonna to love me and we're going to be friends. And so he sent him the bribe. And how did that work out for him? Esau came with an army of 400 men to kill him. Now, the only reason he didn't kill him because God changed Esau's heart. Because Jacob wrestled with God and decided he was going to be Israel. The prince who walked with God. Who listened to God and did God's will. Now, he doesn't do that very often after that point. But at least he positionally put himself in a position where he could trust the Lord if he wanted to. But here he is, he's scheming again. And, and uh, uh, here's what happens, as I said earlier. When you take matters into your own hands. That, uh, again, we've got to learn to live life somewhere in the middle. But when you're always taking your matter, matters into your own hands and you're not seeking God for his will and following his will and operating his power... What's going to happen? More often than not, you're going to fail. And you're going to continue to fail. And, you, and after you have continued to fail over and over again, let me tell you the next step where you head from that point. You become a fatalist. 
you give, you almost come to the point where you give up on life, where you give up on trying, and you just say, K sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not mine to see. K sera, sera. What will be, will be. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen to Jacob now as we go to the next part of this chapter. Look at verse number 12. It says, he says in verse number 12, take down, take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Now, and then he, look how he surrenders to his fate now. Instead of saying, and the Lord's going to do wonderful things for you. We're going to get Benjamin back. Everything's going to work out good because I'm following the plan of the Lord. He can't say that because he's not following the plan of the Lord. He says, he says, take your brother also and rise and go back to the man. Now, that's interesting now that he's willing to give up Benjamin. I mean, he was hard-headed. There's no way in the world I'm going to ever give up Benjamin. Benjamin's not going to Egypt with you. Well, now his stomach's growling a little bit. And, and, and he sees the little ones, and their stomachs are growling. And everybody's getting hungry, and they're about to die. And so he finally caves in, and he says, Take your brother also and rise and go back to the man, that man who's lord over Egypt, who happens, but by the way, to be his son. And may El Shaddai, God Almighty. Now, here he gets really pious. May, I'm not going to... I'm not going to seek God and find out what God wants me to do. But may El Shaddai, who has all power, maybe I ought to be seeking him. But he doesn't. He says, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may be release your other brother Simeon and Benjamin. Now watch this. This is a fatalistic view if I've ever heard one. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Here's what he's saying. Now that I've helped the Lord out, may El Shaddai, who has all power, who really doesn't need my help, may he have mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin. But if he doesn't, if he doesn't, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. If God wants him to be dead, he will be dead. In other words, here's his attitude. Give it to God and expect the worst. How many people I've met who call themselves Christians who live exactly like that? Give it to God and expect the worst. If God wants him dead, he'll be dead. That's a fatalistic, pessimistic way of looking at things. Now, look, I understand why Jacob feels this way to some degree. I mean, he had lost his son, Joseph. And as far as he was concerned, his his favorite son, Joseph, was dead. And he doesn't want to lose his favorite son, Benjamin, now. So, So he says... If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. But what should he have been saying at this point? He should have been saying, look, I am Israel, prince with God. That's what we all should be saying when we're in difficult times. I am a prince with God. I am a son 
our, our daughter of God. God wants what is good for me. God doesn't want what's evil for me. God doesn't want my family to starve. Jacob should have been saying, God loves Benjamin. He wants the best for Benjamin. He loves me. He wants the best for me. And he's working all things together for my good. I mean, I look back over my 130 years and he's always worked everything out for my good, except this one thing. This one thing. He took my son, Joseph. He took my son, Joseph. And I don't think Jacob had ever forgiven God for that. But how wrong was Jacob at this point? I mean, all these things that he saw as as coming against him were actually for him. God was working all things for his good, even his relationship with Joseph. So he sends, with his bad attitude, he sends his sons off with these cheerful words. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. How do you think maybe that made Benjamin feel? What? If, if Benjamin dies, Benjamin dies. I mean, Benjamin probably wasn't liking that too much. And you know, I just, what I see in this more than anything else is the great mercy and grace of God. He never says, after 130 years of this stuff, he never says to Jacob, Jacob, I have had enough. You've crossed the final line. I'm done with you. No, I'll tell you what, we're getting to the really exciting part of this story. The really good part of this story. What's God going to do in spite of what Jacob's attitude is? He's going to go right on doing his good works for Jacob. Look at, look at, look at how good this story gets now as we pick up uh, in verse number 15. In verse number 15, it says, So the man took the present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hands, and they arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph, their brother, who they didn't recognize. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, can you imagine? He said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal. We're going to have a party. And make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. But now i got to tell you, like father, like son, Joseph's sons were fatalists too. And they, they saw that, heard about the animal being slaughtered, and they said, hey, this guy's up to something bad. He's out to get us. And then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the man to Joseph's house. And boy, they knew they were in trouble. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. Not only is he going to take us as slaves, he's going to take our donkeys. Can you imagine that? Now, I wonder why they didn't, they thought maybe they were going to be taken as slaves because that's exactly what they had done to their brother. They had sold him off as a slave and their consciences are still bothering them and they are fatalists because they had done all of these evil things in their lives and, and, and they see that now that, that fate is turning against them and that, hey, God is turning against them and that they might be slaves too. So in verse number nine, when, when, when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house, and they said, look, hey, uh, put a good word in for us, will you? 
I mean, let, let us tell you what really happened back there. And they tell the truth. They say, oh, sir, we indeed came down at, at the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack. Our, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand. And we have brought down our money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Now watch what the steward says. This has got to shock them. But he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Because your God and the God of your father. Now that steward knew about Jehovah God. I wonder how he knew about Jehovah God. The same way those prisoners in the, the, the house of Caesar, when Paul was in prison uh, in Caesar's house, that's the same. And they knew about, learned about Jehovah God. They learned, this steward learned about Jehovah God through none other than Joseph. And he says, the God and your God and the God of your father, Jehovah God, has given you treasure in your sack. It was God who did this for you. He said, but I was the one who had the money. I was the one who put the money in your sacks. And and then he went out and he brought uh, Simeon out to them. And Simeon's looking good. Simeon wasn't beat up. He wasn't starving. He'd been treated well. And and uh, so, hey, they're feeling really good at this point. So the man brought the man. And so the steward of the house brought the man into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and gave he, and he gave their donkeys feed. Now, they loved those donkeys. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon. Again, like father, like son. Well, let's give him this bribe. Let's give him this bribe because this is really going to help us out. And they heard that they would they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came uh, home, the first thing they did, they brought him the present, which was in, in their hand, uh, into the house. And watch this. They bowed down before him. Uh, just like they had done before. This is the second time that Joseph's dream that he had when he was a young man is being fulfilled. And then he asked them, Joseph asked them about their well-being. And, and this, should, again, this, this should have clued them that something was going on here. I mean, that, that, that this very well might be Joseph because he, he wants to know. He says right away, the first thing he asked him, is your father Jacob well? He doesn't know his name, but he said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father, who really is your father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down to him and prostrated themselves before him for the third time. So this dream is definitely being fulfilled. Then Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin. Can you imagine what he felt at that point? His mother's son. And he said, if you notice the is there, if you've got the new King James is in italics, so it's not there. So really this should read. So this, this is what Joseph said, says to them. He says, so, so this is your, your younger brother of whom you spoke to me. And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And it was more than Joseph could take at this point. I mean, it was just more than he could take. Now, his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and he wept. And I have no doubt that he lifted his hands up to heaven and he praised God and he thanked God for this great moment. 
the moment that he knew long ago when he had that dream, one day would happen. His brothers all would be there and they all would bow down to him. But more importantly now, he sees his brother, his brother whom he hadn't seen for over 20 years. And he praises the Lord and he thanks the Lord. Then he washes his face. He didn't want them to know that he's been crying. And, and he restrained himself and he said, serve the bread. So they set him in a place by himself. By, by him, so, so they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now that is absolutely amazing to me. Here was this little nation who was nothing more at this point than a large family. And yet these Egyptians hated this nation. They hated them. They were just a blip on the map. And yet in their hearts, they had hate for the Egyptians. Now, where did that hate come from? It's anti-Semitism. There's no doubt that's what it is. And where does that come from? It comes from the pit of hell. It comes from the devil. I was listening to one of these writers they were interviewing the other day. And, and they were talking about burning a synagogue. And the lady asked them, why would you want to burn a synagogue? They said because it was the Jews who first brought slaves into the United States. Now, I don't know where in the world they got, got a lie like that, but I do know where they got a lie like that. It, it, it was put in their heart by none other than Satan himself. Can you imagine a situation like that being focused on anti-Semitism? What do the Jews got to do with all of that stuff? And so, so anyway, that's something that's been prevalent throughout the world. It's going to be prevalent throughout the world. And people are always going to blame things, and they're going to always somehow bring up the Jewish nation into the picture when bad things are happening in the world. And, and, and that is nothing but demonic. Now, then look at the, the, the next few verses here. It says, And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the man looked in astonishment at each other. What had Joseph done? He had arranged each brother by his age, from the youngest to the oldest. There were 11 brothers there. Someone says, I read somewhere where someone said, that, or someone has calculated that there, that is a 1 in 40 million chance of getting that right without knowing the ages of those brothers. 1 in 40 million. They didn't, I don't think they sat there and calculated the odds, but they knew that it was impossible. How does this guy know our ages so that he can place us in order by our age from the youngest to the oldest? Duh. Hello. Who would know that who's in Egypt? Only Joseph. So I would have at least said at this point, Joseph is working somewhere in this house. And if he's friends with Pharaoh, we're in deep trouble. I would have at least thought, thought of it that way. But I might would have looked at that guy again. Said, man, he looks familiar. He looks familiar. And only our brother would know how to arrange us in order. Or our father and our father's back in heaven. And so this is impossible unless it's him. But they, 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 like I say, watch what happens. They're too busy eating and drinking. Then he took servings to them from before them 
But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. Now, why would he favor Benjamin? I, duh, I would ask that question too. Uh, but they didn't bother about it because they were being served wine and the best food in all of Egypt. They hadn't eaten that well in, 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 since before the famine started. And so they got drunk and uh, they were happy as a lark as the story closes in chapter number 43. Now, as we go back to this next week, uh, we're going to begin to see the fruition of God's plan of salvation for the nation of Israel, really part of his plan of salvation for us. And uh, uh, we're, we're going to really be blessed when Joseph finally reveals himself, in a couple of weeks we'll see that, reveals himself to his brothers, and not only is he reunited with his brother Benjamin, He's going to be reunited with his father, Jacob. And what a glorious day that had to be. But it's interesting to me, Jacob's attitude at this point. And it doesn't really change until he dies. It's really sad. Because even after he's united to Joseph, he's going to meet Pharaoh for the very first time. And, and, and what an opportunity to witness to Pharaoh. But here's what he says to Pharaoh. He says, the days of my life have been few and evil. He lived to be 147 years old. How could he say the days of his life had been few? He was maybe the most blessed man on earth. How could he say all his days had been evil? You see how when you take a fatalistic view, how pessimistic you come and everything you look at in life is looked at through a dark colored glass. Be careful of that. When you begin to look at life that way, you're moving towards fatalism. And I'll tell you how you got there. You got there the same way Jacob got there because of your, you've been a determinist. You've tried to determine your own fate in every situation, difficult situation you've been in. And I know a lot of people who do that. And at times we all do that. And so Jacob's, bad attitude was his own fault. He made himself into a pessimist and a fatalist. And that's what a lot of people end up doing who are Christians in this day and age in which we live. They end up, they start out as determinists and they end up as fatalists. I I hear it from people. They say things like, if God wants me to be sick, I'll be sick. If God wants me to be poor, I'll be poor. If God wants me to be unhappy, I'll just have to be unhappy. That is a negative way of looking at the Christian life. And you, got no, you have no witness when you're looking at life that way, way. I mean, I agree. The whole story of Genesis, I mean, we have, during this whole year or so we've been in the book of Genesis, we have focused greatly over the sovereignty of God. And I believe in the sovereignty of God over all the affairs of man. I believe in that. I believe in providence. I believe that, 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 that uh, God's will is going to be done regardless of what we do on this earth. He is going to get his will done. So I don't want to be a determinist. See, that, that rules out determinism. I don't want to be trying to determine my own fate in, in every situation that I'm involved in. 
I want the sovereign God's will to be done in my life. But that doesn't mean I become passive. I'm active in my life, but I'm seeking God's will and I'm living by God's power and I'm and following God's directions. And, 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 and that's the difference between being a determinist and being a good Christian. When we're trying to determine things ourselves and are taking matters into our own hands, we're going to more than often, more often than not, we're going to fail. And that leads us to fatalism. That makes us pessimistic. And God doesn't want us pessimistic. God wants us to be optimistic. And we can be optimistic because we know that God is good. Sovereign God is good. And that means that his will is always good. And that he's going to get his will done in spite of our pessimism. So why not, if you're a pessimist, be an optimist about your pessimism. Because eventually God's going to get his will done in your life. You can do it kicking and screaming. Or you can do it the easy way. You can just follow his lead. One of the things you can do when you study these biblical characters is contrast the way they handle different problems in their life. Just, Just look at the difference between the way Jacob is is handling or how Jacob has handled his life and where he ended up compared to the way Paul ended up. Remember Paul was in that Roman jail and, and uh, uh, wait, he was waiting to find out whether or not he was going to get his head chopped off. And he wasn't a fatalist. I mean, he didn't say, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. You know, if I die, I die. He didn't say that at all. What did he say from that jail? He said, he said this. He said, if I die, it will be far better for I will be with Christ. If I stay, it will be far better than you because I will be able to serve you. In other words, he didn't take a fatalistic view. He was in the will of God and he was going to submit to whatever that will was. And, and, and what did he say from that Roman jail? He said, he said I, what did he exhort us to do? To rejoice. I'm in a Roman jail and I can rejoice. And you can rejoice. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. Look, I understand that things are really bad out there right now. Everybody understands that. Even my lost neighbor understands that if you don't see that now then 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 you're you're in trouble i mean things might get back to normal but but the normal might be a new normal but regardless you, you can one of the things that all of these difficulties all these problems these troubles that we've had lately have shown us is just how evil this world is it's really exposed our leaders for just how evil they are and so no matter whether the economy comes back or, or, or we don't have a storm in the Gulf or, or uh, the riots in, even when those things have passed, the situation in the United States has not changed. We are still in a very difficult situation. We are living in a very evil world. And 
It's real easy when you see so much evil to take a fatalistic attitude and say, case or ra, whatever will be, will be. The future's not mine to see. Case or ra, But that's not the attitude we should have as Christians because what that attitude turns into, it turns into bitterness. Deep-rooted bitterness that's really hard to shake. So what do we do? We find the balance between fatalism and determinism, which is faith. And we live by faith, full of optimism, because we know that, yes, God is sovereign, but God is working all things for our good. And we should be trusting him. We should be following him. We should be looking for his guidance. And we should be doing his will. And we should be rejoicing. Even in the midst of these difficult times, we should be rejoicing. And instead of our shoulders all drooped over and, 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 and pessimistically walking through this world, we should be standing up tall and looking up because our redemption draweth nigh. That's the end of all things. Our redemption draweth nigh. We're not far from that. So take cheer today and uh, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for all you're doing in our life, all you have done in our life. We thank you for, for the lessons you teach us through a story like this, Lord. Help us, not to, help us to learn not to try to take matters into our own hands, Lord, but to trust you, to follow your will, to follow your guidance, to, to live through, by your grace and your power. Lord, and if we do that, we won't become fatalistic. We won't become pessimistic. We will become very optimistic. And we'll see things through an optimistic glass, Lord, and we'll be able to rejoice in everything that we do and everything that we see. Lord, we know you're working in this world no matter how dark this world seems. We know you're working in our lives, Lord, and you're working in the lives of the lost people on this earth, Lord. And we just pray that many are saved during these very difficult times. Lord, help us not to lose the light that you've given us through, through, uh, through taking a fatalistic attitude. Just help us to be encouraged, Lord, in your word, by each other, in the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. We have so many wonderful things through him, Lord. We thank you for his blood, Lord, and now we want to celebrate what you've done for us on the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Your grace abounds to me.
to find the balance between determinism and fatalism than there is at the cross. Because through determinism, I can't determine my eternal destiny. There's no way through my own works I can find the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, I'm not a fatalist. I'm not a victim of my fate. Christ has died for me and he's made a way for me to have eternal life. And I know where my eternal destination is. Now the perfect, we live as Christians in the perfect middle ground. And that's the middle ground of faith. Faith in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Faith In the cross for our righteousness. Faith in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ for our eternal life. And as we receive Christ, we so walk in him, we're told by Paul in the book of Colossians. So not only are we saved by faith, we're not determinists, we're not fatalists. We walk by faith in the joy of Jesus Christ. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, For I received for the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had broken it, he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Y'all want to stand? We'll close in the song.